0: Hi, all. Lauren here with a quick announcement before this week's episode. Kate and I were inspired by Mary Ann and Stacy's exploits in Sea City last episode and have decided to plot our own summer adventures in the month of July. We'll be taking the month off and we'll return to our regularly scheduled episodes on Tuesday, August 3rd. We'll have lots of fun things planned for when we return, so hopefully, like us, you are fully vaxxed and slowly making your way out back into the world. Hope you have fun while you do, and we'll see you in August.
1: I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC. Generation BSC is a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss each book in the Babysitter's Club, episode by episode, book by book, chronological order of release, not necessarily chronological order of the story itself. As we've come to realize, things are sort of all, <laughs> all over the place, especially when you're throwing super specials into the mix. We haven't even gotten to the mysteries yet, so who knows where those are going to take us. But that's what we do. We look at it, you know... Re- reading them again as women in our 30s, thinking back, reading them as girls in our single digits. I don't know how you would say that, but, you know, (laughs) before we were 10, we remember reading these books. So um, that's what we do. We talk about them, look at them, sort of inspect them, see how maybe um, they are a little problematic (laughs) in retrospect. I'm not necessarily saying there's anything in this book – but I am saying there's something in this book. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Yes. Uh, give it away all the what we're going to have to talk about today. Well, there are plenty of topics with this book, um, which is book number 35, Stacey and the Mystery of Stony Brook. So I don't know if we want to dive right into the back of the book to sort of give people a taste of what this mystery of Stony Brook might be.
0: Oh, yes, because spoiler alert, you were mostly correct, and I was entirely wrong when it came to our predictions, <laughs> which, you know, I'd say that's a pretty pretty standard batting average for us. All right. So as Kate said, this is book 35. This was released in June 1990, and this is when we are in that transitional ghostwriter period. So we're going to start seeing a couple of Anna Martins sprinkled in, but transitioning out. So this one is Ellen Miles. We've got two ghost writers back-to-back for the first time, mm-hmm. and two different ones for the first time, too, because the first couple were both Jan Carr, and now we're starting to to mix things up a little bit. So let's check the back of the book to see how they were getting single-digit us <laughs> excited about it back <laughs> in the day. Unlike Claudia and Dawn, Stacy's never been much for mysteries and ghost stories. But When she and Charlotte Johansson hear terrible noises coming out of the old Hennessy place, Stacy thinks the babysitters definitely have a mystery on their hands. Mallory claims the house once made her have a horrible nightmare, and Christy discovers that it was built on top of a graveyard. Does Stony Brook have a real, live, haunted house? The babysitters are going to find out, no matter how scary it may be. Pretty. I mean, yeah, but like plot point wise, all over the place. The yeah. fact that we're calling out Mallory's dream, which
1: is like a sentence, <laughs> like she's yeah. like, "Oh, this one time,"
0: and it's literally the only thing she contributes to the plot the entire book. And the fact that we call it the old Hennessy place when that—that's
1: part of the mystery,
0: <laughs> exactly. When that was not solved until like three fourths of the way through the book. So yeah. Uh, this one was kind of wild for me.
1: Yeah, the back of the book, uh, it, like, this is one of those ones where it's like, it's not wrong and it's not like overhyping it, but it's also like, that's not what this book is about. <laughs> like you, the 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 things you're focusing on are so not like the story, like it is the story, but it's not. I don't
0: know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and this one was especially strange for me because I kind of had a roller coaster experience with this book where it just felt really kind of scattershot to me. Mm-hmm. And there were things about it that I really really loved and other things where I was just kind of baffled and other stuff where I was just like kind of bored. I, like I don't know, it just felt a little disjointed and all over the place, but at the same time really really charming. And mm-hmm. I don't know if if that was just my strange reading experience or uh, what about you? What was your what was your overall takeaway?
1: Yeah, I would say overall, I generally enjoyed it. It was like a fun little story. There wasn't anything too out there that was like unexpected. But there were parts where I was like, okay, come on. Let's like keep things moving. Like – and I, I know this comes up in a lot of books. But like in this book, Dawn and Mallory are babysitting for the Pikes. And it's like completely divorced from the rest of the story aside from – they put on, like, to entertain themselves, the children decide to put on The Wizard of Oz, and that's sort of related to Christy's babysitting job because Christy's reading all of the Oz books to her younger siblings. So Dawn thinks, oh, we'll just have the, the Pike kids put on The Wizard of Oz, and so it's just like – it just feels like sort of a – like a break for no reason and i understand that we have that happen in a lot of books but at least some of the books you know like claudia babysits for the perkinses and they go to the library and she spends that time looking for more history on this house and she figures out that ronald Tennessee owned it before it got sold to the developers so like at least it's sort of on topic i i think maybe that was the issue is like the other babysitting jobs aren't completely off topic and then the pike one is just like and here's a babysitting job for the Pikes. The end. Like but yeah, generally I, I liked it, but the it was very sort of up and down in the actual reading of it, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: that's that I think that's exactly how I felt about it too. Like enjoyable overall, but just not very coherent and yeah. like the the my level of enjoyment changed from like chapter to chapter based on on what was happening. Yeah. But weirdly enough, even the completely disjointed Pike babysitting scene was actually written really very charmingly and very detailed in a way that mm-hmm. we haven't seen in a little while. Like, I mean, obviously we've been talking about the ghostwriter thing for a while. So I was aware going into this one that it wasn't Anna M. Martin. And uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm lying to myself even saying it, but I can't help but feel like I would have noticed at least to some degree from a reading standpoint now that it was a different author. There's just. I don't know. There was something slightly fresh about the writing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say I liked comparing the the writing itself in this book to the last book. I definitely liked the writing in this book better.
0: Yes, it was much more charming. It mm-hmm. seemed kinder. It seemed more upbeat and cheerful in a way. I think I don't. I don't even know really how to describe it, but it just it bounced a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Too Many Boys felt like such a heavy melodrama where this felt more uh, fun. And like even when it was in the draggy moments, it it bounced along nicely. It was a very easy reading experience.
1: Yeah. And it definitely helped that all of the girls, all of the characters really felt like themselves. Because I think that was Mm -hmm. one of our bigger complaints with Too Many Boys was that we have them acting sort of out of character a little bit or a little – off in certain ways. And I feel like here, everyone was very much who we know them to be, who we love them to be. And it was just, and all, of, and everyone was getting along. I think that, you know, yeah. it, coming off of the last one, where obviously by the end of the book, everything's great and there are friends again. But like, it's difficult to read. Babysitter's Club books where there's some sort of conflict between or among girls in the club. Like, I think mm-hmm. I think yeah. we just, we don't like to see that. And I know we've talked about that before. Like, we want our girls to be friends. Like, they're all good friends. We want them to stay friends. And it's not fun when they're not friends. <laughs> exactly. And
0: I think that that's one of the things that I kept saying over and over to myself as I was reading this one is it's so much fun because, you know, we joked about Mallory a little bit. She and Jesse as uh, is often the case with Stacy stories, kind of get, you know, shuttled off to the Mm -hmm. corner and other than that it really felt like an all hands on deck book like it was a stacy book but everybody was working together everybody was invested in the mystery everybody was a part of it and that was really fun and it felt like we haven't had that a while even in the like super specials they've been you know very disconnected plot lines i feel like this is the first time in a hot minute we've seen them really all come together as the whole group Mm -hmm. and that's that is always you know my favorite favorite moments but as you can probably guess from how much we've been talking about it the plot was the thing that i felt was really pretty secondary to all of this Mm -hmm. you know it felt much more like a hangout book which i again i have no problem with i in fact really enjoy that there's definitely a place for that and i i think over, you know, 200 some books that we have in the series, I think we're going to have hopefully a lot more of these opportunities to just hang out. But like, we haven't even gotten to your plot summary, because it kind of doesn't matter. Like, (laughs) it has nothing to do (laughs) with anything. There's no real big lesson learned. It's, you know, kind of a rehash, remix of things we've seen a lot of times before. Like, couldn't help but laugh in the back of the book when they're saying, you know, Stony Brook might have a real haunted house. And I'm like, mm, pretty sure this is the third time we've had a potential haunted house. And
1: <laughs> This talked- time, for sure. It, this is the yeah. one. <laughs>
0: like, I'm, they straight up refer to the other two in this book. So it's really funny that they're like, oh, my God, it it might be haunted. Uh, okay, been down that path before. Right. So in any case, why don't you actually remind us what little plot that there is, <laughs> what actually does happen?
1: Okay. Okay. That I can do. Okay, so the Stacey-specific plot of the book. After the typical introductory chapters, we dive right into the Stacey-specific plot when it is revealed an old and abandoned house on Elm Street near Stacey's house is being torn down to make way for a new condo development, because that would definitely be approved by the Stony Brook Zoning Board and other governmental agencies, given what we know about the town. Stacy initially scoffs at this being big news, but after the start of a week-long overnight babysitting job for Charlotte Johansson, they go to look at the house and see a scary face in the window and flames in another window, hear moaning that sounds like a ghost, and see a swarm of flies like Stacy remembers from the Amityville horror. This kicks off the mystery that the entire Babysitter's Club gets invested in as they work to determine whether the house is haunted, including figuring out who owns the house or did prior to the developer acquiring it, to ask them about the history. Through Christie and Claudia's research, more on that later, they discover the prior owner is a man named Ronald Hennessy, who currently resides in Stony Brook Manor, a nursing home, and they pay him a visit where he regales them with all the tales of the ghosts and creepy occurrences he experienced growing up in the house. On the day the house is finally fully demolished, Stacey gets a feeling like she has to see Mr. Hennessy again immediately and runs to the nursing home, only to discover that he passed away the night before, but not without first writing a note to Stacey, explaining that he made everything up, but that he really enjoyed their visit. Charlotte is very involved in the mystery in the Babysitter's Club during her week at Stacey's and enjoys her time there immensely, other than when she comes down with tonsillitis, that is. We're also back to laying the groundwork for some kind of Stacey illness story in the future, although this book seems to point towards puberty causing some of the havoc with her treatment plan. So the Babysitter's Club plot. As noted, the Babysitter's Club is, as usual, very invested in the mystery that cropped up. Christy finds some old books about the history of Stony Brook that Watson got at an estate sale, and in looking at them, finds a handwritten map that she problematically interprets as showing the haunted house was built on a, quote, ancient burial grounds, which is why the house is haunted. Claudia uses her research skills to track down the prior owner using property tax records at the library and even thinks she may want to be a librarian someday like her mom, although she does have a brain fart about how to look up where people currently live and has to be reminded (laughs) about the phone book. (laughs) (laughs) Don and Mallory babysit for the pikes, where nothing mystery-related happens, but we do get some, quote, great pike meal descriptions, along with their performance of The Wizard of Oz. Christy ultimately finds the answer that there was no real mystery and no haunting after Charlie and Sam get more details from the workers tearing down the house, who explain the face in the window and the flames as a worker who stayed late to use an acetylene torch, the moaning coming from the old plumbing system, and the flies actually being a swarm of bees whose hive was disturbed. So there's clearly a lot to unpack with this book, but most of it is super fun. So
0: let's start with the quote-unquote ancient burial ground bullshit so we can get that out of the way and move on to the more fun stuff. So it's one of those things that I didn't realize quite how much of our cultural scary stories and like – I mean, even all of that Stephen King stuff, mm-hmm. they reference Pet cemetery in this book. Basically, just how much culture is built around this idea of things being built on an ancient burial ground, and that's why they're haunted. And it's certainly been impacted by the fact that we're less than a week out from the discovery of the mass burial sites mm-hmm. in Canada of the indigenous children. And it really just sort of brought into stark relief that, you know, we throw this ancient burial ground reasoning out so often. And I never really unpacked what that meant, the horror of that. And Mm -hmm. these aren't just, you know, passive burial grounds. These are likely the burial grounds of people that their ancestors killed in one form or fashion to to be on this land. And it just, I think the grossest part is there is zero unpacking of it or thinking about it in that way. And I, I think I respond so strongly to it now because I know that there wasn't for me either at that mm-hmm. time and for a long time um and i think that that's one of the reasons it's so stark to me now is because I- i'm still grappling with it mm-hmm. if that makes sense
1: no that makes perfect sense i mean it really like when she says it in the book it's sort of like well of course that's what christie's assumption would be and then yeah thinking through it more it's like going back to when we were kids and like you and i we both grew up in ohio there are a lot of I mean, all over our country, there are a lot of indigenous peoples that used to live here. In Ohio, in particular, there's certain areas that, you know, I, I think down near where you live or where you grew up, there's, like, the, the mounds and all Ooh, of the that. The serpent mounds. Yeah, yeah, the serpent mounds. So, like, we were at least aware of those things as children. And the thought that, like, I know, I know as a child, like, I never put those two things together. It's like... I know the reality, or as much of the reality as I could know. I mean, obviously, we were growing up when we were growing up, and even today, schools are maybe not so great about giving the full picture of what things were like for the Indigenous peoples that lived in our country before it was colonized, but you know, you, you at least get that part of the reality. And, you know, there were people that were here before, and they had their whole civilizations and cultures, and they had, you know, the serpent mounds as part of their burial rituals and all of that type of thing. And then you also have the pop culture quote unquote, ancient burial grounds leading to hauntings or poltergeists or whatever. And like, as a kid, I never put those two things together. Like it, objectively i should have thought about it at least for a second that it was like mm-hmm. not the same but like that's what the pop culture was talking about and i just know as a child reading this book and i i don't remember if i actually read this book or not but it this is not the only time in in you know childhood <laughs> culture that this concept came up because i know reading it now it's like well of course that's what christy would think you know it's it was yep. just so ingrained and especially when they were writing this book it was just sort of like well, obviously, Christy would have this concept in her head and that's why she would jump to that conclusion. And it's just – it's wild to me that for so long it was just sort of like – for me and a for a lot of people. Right? It was just like that's what it is. That's That's how you start a scary movie. And like the fact <laughs> – like I wish – and this would not have like – excused it in any way but i wish in this book there had been a reference to the movie poltergeist because that that is that specific you know backstory or whatever Mm -hmm. and then we would have at least had you know it doesn't (laughs) it doesn't make that movie any you know more okay but at least then we would have an explanation for why christy jumped there more specifically as opposed to just you know the ephemera culture around her makes her think that Uh, you know because they they talk about that cemetery they talk about the amityville horror and it's like so you're talking about real movies that are scary that these girls are allegedly seeing so like throw poltergeist in there so i at least get i can draw that connection ahead of where this is coming right exactly
0: yeah Yeah. of of why christy jumped there uh, from some handwritten uh, like they kept saying ancient burial grounds, but literally nothing about their research indicated that in any way, which is its own kind of problematic. But as you were talking, I think that there were two are two main reasons, and and I don't mean this as like as an excuse way, certainly not. But I, mm-hmm. I think a big part of us trying to, to get into this for ourselves, like clearly you can hear us working it out as we're talking our way through this. I think important part of that is, is recognizing what the messages were, how we got there in the first place, how we got here in the first place. And I think that there were two things that that really shaped the messaging for me personally, especially thinking of the Serpent Mounds, like you mentioned. I mean, we went there on a school trip and that is a a sacred burial site Mm -hmm. like you were saying and it was treated as you know here's a bunch of small school children pointing and staring right and looking back on it now that's horrifying but i think like i said there were two main things that were at work here at least for me and for my perception of it is we were told that this was ancient they keep using that word ancient to make it as far in the distant past as possible so the reason they make civil rights pictures black and white to make it seem as if this was happening you know in a time so far removed for us that it has nothing to do with us Mm -hmm. when it's not that long ago, I mean, it's not, it it, it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And more importantly, it makes it seem like it's not still happening. As if our mistreatment of the indigenous people was a regrettable chapter of our history that ended many, many, many years ago. And it's because they didn't know any better. And we know better now, as if that's not still happening today, Mm -hmm. not just with our indigenous cultures, but you know, all over the country, so I think that that um, distancing of it during timeline is a big piece of it, and I think the other big piece of it is around distancing in experience and culture and a a superiority that white supremacy is coming out to strike again. This assumption that Christianity first, especially here in um, the United States, and I think most of Western culture is very you know white christianity forward whatever flavor of christianity Mm -hmm. that may be for you Uh, um being the assumed pinnacle the highest the best you could have so this very different practice these very different belief systems could be pointed at as barbaric and less than and um needed to be reformed in that there was yes it was regrettable that some bad things happened but really we were doing them a favor so I I think that there's like I said not as an excuse but as a context for why we didn't maybe see it the way we do now but I, I'd be really curious to know how much of that is our experience and adult brain and I wonder what mm-hmm. kids now are like what messages they're getting like h- is that still as prevalent is right. that still not being unpacked I- at all is that still not being interrogated in any way uh, i genuinely i don't know that's a real that's a real question mm-hmm.
1: yeah well i mean that's that's what i was sort of thinking is like i remember what how we were taught but i don't know if it's gotten better you know i my guess is probably not no. <laughs> i mean because i mean i i know you know friends that have small kids, they still do the whole Thanksgiving, you know, right before Thanksgiving. They do the whole mm. dressing up and, you know, the pilgrims are these great people and, you know, the native tribes that were, you know, helping them out of the goodness of their hearts. And they were just so nice. And like, um, but yeah, I I, I yeah. I, I I don't I don't like I don't even know what else I can say, but it's just I don't know. I just hate that this is still like, it would be nice to be like, oh, that was just, you know, it was 1990. We we have come yeah. so far since then, but we know that we haven't, and it's disappointing. And I, I would be interested when they do update this book to see if they, you know, in the graphic novels, if there are any changes to that piece of this story in particular. Because I think – I don't think it would – the story wouldn't lose anything from losing yeah, that I concept. So. I mean, I think you could still have Christy find a map and – you know sort of maybe there's a little bit different information on there because that's the thing is like we don't even know like stacy herself says i like you can't really read this map i don't know why stacy or i don't know why christy necessarily jumped to that conclusion so it's it's sort of like it really is just sort of coming from christy and her sort of pop culture brain that this is the reason why it might be haunted you know, th- this old yeah. map clearly shows this. And Stacy's like, ah, it it's not really legible. It's just an old map. But like, Christy and Charlotte are very sold on the fact that this map clearly shows this. And it's like, it's not. Please take this out when you redo the book for graphic novels.
0: <laughs> or at the very least, have them, you know, like really be horrified mm-hmm. by the idea. They seem so blase about, right. yep, oh, it's probably, you know, unruly ghosts on this ancient burial site. When, you know, have them really recognize? Oh my God, that would be horrific, right? Which again, then just take it out because that's totally off, totally, right? Totally <laughs> that maybe
1: maybe not <laughs> that that might not fit that well into a babysitter's club book, but it also, I mean, when they go visit Mister Hennessy in the the nursing home. I don't think they mention anything about burial grounds to him, but when he's making up all these stories, one of the things he says is that the house is built on an old graveyard and that that's why it's haunted. And so he sort of jumps to the same conclusion. He at least doesn't say ancient burial grounds, but, you know, graveyard is no worse or better. Like, I don't know. For me, old graveyard to me feels
0: like they. It was like an old church that they bulldozed over to make a parking lot. Yeah. Where uh, ancient burial ground conjures up all kinds of, you know, atrocities to me. I'm not saying it's better in terms of disrespect for the dead. Absolutely not. But it just, the connotation isn't quite the same. But I do think you're onto something there when the fact that like he went there too, that Mm -hmm. it is so ingrained in our psyche that unrestful dead is, you know, shorthand for why ghosts exist in the first place in our popular culture, Mm -hmm. in our, in just, in, you know, human psyche in general. Uh, And so the idea that the, you know, a disturbed burial ground would be cause for ghosts makes sense. It's this ancient burial ground, especially knowing where they are in Connecticut. There's all kinds of implications there that to me is where we got into some really sticky, sticky territory. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. well, just transition us away from the stickiness of it and back onto the plot mystery. If you are looking for something that is talking a little bit more and interrogating a little bit more about that kind of sticky history, I really do recommend Rutherford Falls on Peacock. I feel like not enough people are talking about it. It was, I'm not a huge Ed Helms fan. I don't dislike him the way that some people do, but he's not, you know, like somebody that I'm gonna go watch a project for. Mm -hmm. And I I really really enjoyed the show. Not as much. I mean, he was fine in it, great in it, actually. But it was everyone else, and it really it was it is written and created, co-created by actual indigenous people, and it's talking about that experience, and it's it's really funny, and I really highly recommend it. So if, if you haven't watched it yet, it's definitely worth the month long free trial for that and (laughs) girls five eva both for sure but it just it made me think of it we were talking about that earlier this week when kate and i were just chatting but it made me think of it when we were talking about this you know this whole topic because it 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 does deal with similar themes Mm -hmm. and it manages to do so in a respectful but also not super heavy-handed way which is which is really nice because i think we could use more of that Mm -hmm. (laughs) for sure so speaking of (laughs) unheavy-handed I have to tell you, uh, this plot, this mystery plot in particular, uh, I was, I really wanted to be more on board with it than I was. It felt like it was really, really slow to get going. Like we were halfway through the book before we even really got into what it was. Mm -hmm. And then I thought the convenience of, like you said, Mr. Hennessy just dying (laughs) the next day after (laughs) leaving this note for them was beyond ridiculous. And then, like, I knew obviously, that it was all going to have very rational explanations. But for a little bit there, didn't it? And maybe this is just me listening to too much of It's a Clue, Kelly and Karen, our friends, Nancy Drew podcast. But like, I was fully expecting Mr. Hennessy to like, have been like losing the house up style and was like trying to make it appear haunted so that the city wouldn't tear it down. And it was like some, you know, like (laughs) Scooby-Doo, Nancy Mm -hmm. Drew style, like mystery. And then... I don't know if I was disappointed that it was or disappointed that it wasn't. you know what I mean, yeah, part of me was like, okay, if it is that 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 doesn't really fit with these books, but if it isn't that, then there really just is no plot in in general. It's yeah. just they've literally made that up for themselves, so uh, which again, we've talked about before, I feel like we've had these conversations because we've had this plot you know multiple times. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is like – because we – I don't remember exactly how many books ago it was Mallory and the Mystery Diary, but it's in the last 10 for sure. And like that one had a much more clear mystery to me. You know, mm-hmm. like they find this diary, what happened to this painting, Who who is Sophie, and here it's like – it's a house and – Charlotte and Stacey let their imaginations run away with them, and they assume that it's haunted, and, like, that's it. Whereas, like, there's actually a mystery in Secret Diary, or whatever it's called. And that was only seven books ago, okay, by the yeah, way. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, it was very recently. It was, like, right before Richard and Sharon got married. So it's, like, we just had a, a mystery book, and the mystery was similar, but better in the last one (laughs) you know like i think that was the only thing that i really had the bigger like issue with was like this mystery was just sort of like amorphous and based mostly on imagination which is great and i 100 love like kids letting their imaginations run wild and then you know investigating based on that but i don't know that it necessarily makes for as good a book because ultimately the Mystery is solved that there's no – it's not haunted. It's not built on ancient burial grounds or a graveyard as far as we can tell. And, you know, all of the things are explained away by these workmen off screen that are then – the you know, their words are then relayed to Christie by Sam and Charlie, who then relays them to Stacey. And it's, like, it's a third-hand account at that point. And, like, so we don't even get them sort of, like, investigating on the ground at the house. So I I think that's that was the thing that was just sort of, like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's over. Like, it it just – it didn't have, like, a really great resolution. I think that sort of made – retroactively, it made the, like, mystery part be sort of, like, oh, okay.
0: I actually think you hit the nail on the head there, is that – the mystery was not the important part of this book. Like, really, the A-plot was about Charlotte staying with Stacy mm-hmm. and feeling homesick and, uh, you know, Stacy's mixed feelings about being an only child versus having, you know, a little sister Charlotte there. But the the niceness of knowing that, you know, she's going to leave at some point and is going to get her quiet house back, like, that theme came across with Dawn and the Pikes, like – the whole end of that experience was Dawn coming home and, like, uh, sighing a relief yeah. in her, at her quiet house. And then, like, I felt like the Danny Tanner moment was at the end when Stacey was like, yeah, you know, she really built this mystery up. I think she just needed something to distract her from you being gone. And that would have been a great message mm-hmm. if that would have been more where the focus was. But it... it like, it feels like that that's what they were trying to get at, but in a way that was a little too subtle mm-hmm. for these books' audience. Like, I got that. And the fact that all the girls got so into the mystery, which does feel on brand, like we've talked yes. about. <laughs> they want to believe in it. Stacy even calls out a number of times because Stacey – it was – I did really enjoy seeing it, like I said, from her perspective. I thought that was really well written because Stacy is always the one who is a little bit more pragmatic, mm-hmm. who is a little bit less taken in by all of it. I mean, Dawn too, but Dawn wants to believe more than Stacy does. And in this case, you know, hearing it from Stacy's perspective where she was like, you know, I think they really just wanted to believe it. But then wanting to be sophisticated, but having enough of that kid to be like, well, you know maybe Mm -hmm. i can't i can't rule it out i think that's what she says at one point is that you know it's not that she believes it but there's not enough evidence to rule out that that couldn't happen right and there's just that little bit of that doubt and i like as an adult reader all of that was so appreciated and i love that remembering that feeling from from childhood and even now you know keeping on to that little bit of sense of wonder trying to keep that alive and like the way that you spin those stories for the the people younger than you and your feeling responsible for your younger siblings or the, your babysitting charges or now nieces and nephews you know that 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 excitement that comes from being a part of that mm-hmm. childhood experience too i think all of that was really really lovely but i don't know that a kid would get <laughs> any, no. any of that
1: yeah i i definitely agree i think I think, yeah, ultimately that's sort of – it's more clearly pointed out by Stacey to Dr. Johansson when they come to pick up Charlotte. Like, yeah, I think she just needed to distract herself. But, like, it, it's not abundantly clear throughout the book that that's sort of Stacy leaning into that because she knows Charlotte needs that. And I think, I think that could have been done more clearly for kids. Like you said, us reading it mm-hmm. now totally it comes across. But – if I were reading this as an eight-year-old, I would probably not have picked up on that nuance since it is pretty nuanced in this book. <laughs>
0: and even the Danny Tanner moment is usually much more, you know, like there's a lot of buildup. There's a lot of focus on it where this line to the Johansons just felt really throwaway. Yeah. Where I was like, again, I don't think a kid's going to be catching on that this was the takeaway that they're supposed to be learning from. I mean, I don't know. What do you think that the kid takeaway would be? Like, don't let your imagine get run away from you, or do? (laughs) I'm not Uh, sure. Like,
1: I mean, I feel like as a kid, I would probably have taken away, like, let yourself get interested in things that you might not totally understand and see what you can find out. Whether it's you know the mysterious mm -hmm. house down the street or dinosaurs or space or mythology or whatever like if you're interested in something pursue it I think that's what I would have taken away as sort of like an overarching theme of the book and I don't think that it's not a theme of the book but I think as a as an adult there's obviously more layers there that you can you can read than just follow your imagination (laughs) which is the the most basic level for sure (laughs)
0: And even without having a major overarching like build to Danny Tanner moment the way that some of our – of those moments have really landed for us in the past, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's lots of small moments throughout this one around that modeling behavior that we talk about so often, around just really lovely moments that were just fun and like recognizable and relatable as kids that even though – the 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 main mystery and the main plot didn't hang together as well as some of the other ones did. It was still a really fun read mm-hmm. from, like, start to finish. I really just genuinely enjoyed it. Like, we talked a couple of times about the Pike babysitting event chapter but that was, you know, it had nothing to do with anything, but it was really fun to read. And the Claudia Perkins babysitting outing to the library was so much fun and so charming at least that one was sort of like tangentially Mm -hmm. related to the to the mystery but like i love that they talked about wanting to spend the night in the library and the idea that you know everybody the kids in town think of mrs kishi as the librarian and are like shocked to see her out in the world and like that small town ephemera that kind of reminds you of like stars hollow Mm -hmm. i love that kind of those type of moments and i thought this book in particular we've lost a little bit of that as things as we've got a little bit further on and i think maybe the fresh eyes of the ghost writer is where i was really experiencing that you know where the details just seemed a little more specific a little sharper a little less rounded edges if that i don't know if that makes sense or if i'm um just waxing poetic at this point.
1: <laughs> no, I, I definitely got that as well, especially the the trip to the library where, you know, we do get more of, like, the kids' insight into, you know, what they love about the library and, you know, how exciting it is that Mrs. Kishi is the head librarian and she's Claudia's mom. And, you know, mm-hmm. hearing those types of things. And I, I as you were talking, what I started thinking about was the fact that in this book, the sort of descriptions of what's going on are much less sort of – and I don't even know if this is the right way to say it, But and I'm not saying that all of the other books are like this, but like several times recently it sort of felt like descriptions are just basically to move the plot forward or to Mm -hmm. sort of move through this scene and get to the next one. And it's sort of – mechanical is not the right word, but it's just sort of like here's what it is. But then in this book we definitely get some very good – like world building like feeling lived in type of situations because like in you don't need to know that all of the kids in town think mrs kishi lives at the library but because we now know that it does make it a more real feeling town and universe and it was nice to have those kinds of things and get sort of more more like emotional feeling from the characters as opposed to sort of surface level which i think is usually the way that descriptions in these books go.
0: Yeah, I think we're both struggling to describe the exact same feeling mm-hmm. that we got from this book. And I think also in a way that is respectful of Anna M. Martin. But I, I think that basically, if I'm brutally honest about what I feel like I'm feeling from this is a freshness of perspective, a freshness of energy. Mm -hmm. Like Anne's been, I mean, we've been talking about these books have come out once a month for like two years at this point. And we're transitioning into this ghostwriter phase. I think we can feel the fresh perspective that the ghostwriters are able to bring on because it's not Anne describing the same thing that she's described 17 million times before. And I think that that was a really smart, smart move on behalf of the of Anne and the the publishing team, that you know there was such a huge appetite for these books. Rather than push her to uh, you know really exhaust herself and mm-hmm. exhaust plot and exhaust a, a passion for it, like back off and let let fresh eyes have a crack. And I think we really see the the benefit of that in this, in that we are, like you said, getting those details that have been lacking for a little while. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm describing is fuzzy versus sharp. I, I can't even remember how you called it. But I think we're talking about the exact mm-hmm. same same kind of phenomenon. But either way, it made for a very fun read. And I noticed – I cannot wait to get into the fashion with you because the, the fashion descriptions for the first time in a while were really, really detailed mm-hmm. and a lot of fun. And I know that we've been sort of lamenting a lack of that in the last couple <laughs> yep. of books.
1: Yeah, it was definitely – a welcome change, <laughs> with the fashion being very descriptive. So,
0: I, I mean, I don't really have any other big ideas at all, other than to track our timeline and to, to say that it, well, it's just fucked at this point because <laughs> l- literally, last book was the start of summer vacation, and those two weeks we spent with Stacy and Marianne in Sea City, and now we're back in Stony Brook, and they are going to school every day. Yes, so. clearly timeline has just gone gone out the window Uh, and again this would have been an easy fix if they would have just kept Sea City as spring break like it was Mm -hmm. the first go round then this all would have made sense but we we spent so so much time last time talking about spring break versus (laughs) break is a summer vacation only to have them come back to school and so I almost I almost threw the book down in frustration (laughs) From the very first moment. But I thankfully refrained. But that was my only other like big overarching picture thought from from the book. What
1: about you? My only other sort of bigger thing is as a real estate attorney, the yeah. idea that Stony Brook, this like quaint little Connecticut town where everyone is upper middle class, mostly white, that they're tearing down a historical home to build condos. Like – Condos and a large single-family home are not zoned the same, so you can't just tear down a house and build whatever you want. Like there's a lot of approvals and variances and changes in zoning, and I like this is completely irrelevant for anyone reading a babysitter's club book, but like I couldn't turn off my real estate attorney brain and be like yes, of course this makes sense. Like, even in 1990, that makes zero sense. <laughs> so I just – that was, like, the, the other thing I put on our recording plan because I was like, I, I have to remember to, to note this outside of just the, like, one-off random comments that we do as we wrap up. But I and, – and also the fact that Claudia is able at the local Stony Brook Library to look at, like, tax records, like, those are county-level things, so – they wouldn't be at the Stony Brook Library. <laughs> that was part of the plot that was
0: giving me the very Nancy Drew vibes. Mm-hmm. And I know that they kept calling out Claudia was like emulating Nancy Drew. But that was right about the point of the book when I w- went, are, wait, are we actually getting a Nancy Drew book here where we're going to find out that Mr. Hennessy is, you know, trying to fake a haunting for some nefarious purpose or to like save his house right. or something? Because, yeah, no, not so much at the at the Stony Brook Library. and. Even from a non, like, real estate attorney place, I'm going to call bullshit on condos for that being the vibe in Stony Brook at all. Like, letting those – you think a bunch of upper middle class white Karens are going to allow, like, some gauche condo high rise in their perfect little small town where everybody knows the children's librarian? Like, (laughs) that just seems very much not the – speed of stony brook in the first place Uh, and on their residential block like that makes no kind of sense yeah
1: it sometimes and this is not the first time this type of thing has come up but like sometimes there's things in these books where it's just like okay like it it is what it is like you don't you don't know what you're talking about but it's part of the plot so we'll just give it a pass
0: (laughs) but yeah we'll just Zoom right over that, as I I know I would have as a kid. I probably didn't even... No, you know what? I didn't even know what a condo was. I know for sure. (laughs) Because once when I was really young, probably about the age of reading these books, we ran into some older kids in the woods, and they were bragging that they had found a condom, and that (laughs) we probably didn't even know what that was. And I said, yes, I do. That's short for condominium. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. So I... So I knew what a condo was, but I did not know what a condom was, so. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's uh, one of those, that is one of those moments that, you know, you, like, that comes back in the dead of the night and you, like, feel that inner body cringe. (laughs) That's that's one of those moments for me.
1: (laughs) So, do you have any random asides, comments, whatever that we can touch on before we do mine and then do fashion? Because we do have a lot of fashion.
0: Yeah, I I really just want to sort of get to the fashion. I feel like a lot of my random stuff was was packed in with the regular plot because there, you know, it was so random <laughs> as a plot. <laughs> yeah, but I did want to call out that you know they mentioned Dawn and her scary stories books, and one was called Scary Stories Not to Be Read After Dark, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is. I know that I've mentioned it before. That is one of my all time. Like Life favorites, family favorites, down in the annals of history, best books ever. So I love a little shout out. And that kind of led me to note, you know, we mentioned that there were a couple of movies mentioned throughout. And we've mentioned before how they often mention real books. This time they talked about at the children's library hour. They talked about Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel and the little house. And then Stacey goes on to give like a little pitch for the little house that I thought was super charming. And I loved that. I loved that these books are so actively – engaged in trying to get kids to keep reading mm-hmm. and to engage more and I and I really love that. But it's also really interesting to see where they draw that line between like we're gonna give you real things and not real things. Right. And I know we've we've noted that in the past, but I wanna keep calling it out and I love that scary stories to tell in the dark. That was a bridge too far. We don't want to send
1: kids right. to that book yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like there's the there's a scary story book, but we're not gonna tell you what it actually is because we don't want you to get scared. <laughs> Well, and
0: I just found out watching that documentary that was on Netflix that was eh, fine. I wanted it to be better, but uh it was it was entertaining for a Sunday afternoon. But anyway, it was about that book and I didn't realize what a concerted campaign there was to get that banned from school libraries. Mm-hmm. So I can't help but wonder how much that was linked here. They're like well, either they were on the side of it's not appropriate for kids or it was let's not court controversy and just <laughs> avoid that. Together. Right. Exactly. So but in either camp, my mom fell down on give it to them as soon as possible. Because <laughs> <laughs> my mom loves scary stories. So, like, that was the only thing that was really allowed in my house. Mm-hmm. And like the only movies we were allowed to see that were PG-13 and above were scary movies because my mom would take us because she wanted to see them. So, (laughs) and hey, it worked. She raised four kids who love scary movies. That's literally, we hung out in Chicago last weekend. And that's how we ended the night was watching I Know What You Did Last Summer. So, (laughs) (laughs) But that was my only real random thought. I was looking for, there was so much randomness. I was hoping for more of a what the fuck list, but there wasn't enough uh randomness if mm-hmm. you will to for it to be too exciting yeah just Dis- just jointed
1: yeah, definitely. I just had a couple like little things I wanted to call out. In the you know initial chapters, we get the same sort of descriptions of the Babysitter's Club and each of the members and all of that. But there were two things in the descriptions of members of the Babysitter's Club that I just really liked the way that they were written. And like we sort of see a little bit of like Stacey's personality coming through. So when she's describing – she goes from describing Christy to Ma- Marianne. And she says this, but while Christy is loudmouthed and always in the spotlight, Marianne is extremely shy and sensitive, and I mean sensitive. She cries at the drop of a hat, probably because she feels sorry for the poor hat. Like, I loved that so, oh so much. God. And then also when she's describing Mallory, she says, Mal's main problem is being 11. That's right, being 11. She feels more grown up than her parents are ready to let her be. That's a funny way to put it, but you know what I mean. Like, I just love that. Yes,
0: there were a number of places that I, i those were two of them in particular that I highlighted, but where Stacey's, like, subtle shade, her, like, sassiness really came out, and it felt like it walked the line of her, like, being slightly bitchy, but not, you know, Marianne and Too Many Boys bitchy, you know what yeah. I mean? Where yeah, it was, yeah. like, fun kind of a little bit of an edge. Like when she calls Christy babyish because Mm -hmm. she wears it, you know, the same uniform every day, but she's like, but Christy's all right. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) okay, Stacy. And the way there were a couple other times where she gives like the pride because she's crying for the poor hat is the one that really got Mm -hmm. me. But there are a couple of other moments where there's just that subtlest bit of like ribbing, if you will, that she's doing there. And I, but I thought it, it, it stayed on the charming line really, really well. Mm -hmm. I loved, I loved all of it.
1: Yep. Definitely. So one other thing, so Again, during the descriptions, Stacey says that Dawn has never gotten a chance to sit in as alternate officer to replace Christy. And there was a couple books ago where there was the same reference, but that she had sat in for Christy once when there was like a family yes. emergency. And I was like, I knew that it was never like that. So apparently we're back to never. I just had to call that out. Also, David Michaels' favorite lullaby is the Ghostbusters theme song. Just something to note. Like, love it. And then my only other thing is when Claudia's at the library, she talks about a guy that goes to school with them, Bruce Shermerhorn, who's working as a page yes. at the library. And, like, the working as a page at the library was my first job. So I was like, yes. Know that. Love that. Just had to call it out.
0: That was uh, my mom's first job, too. That's actually how my dad got to talk to her is he would <laughs> – he was not a big reader but he he knew that she was a page at the library so he would like get books and then bring them back to her to like oh boy <laughs> can you take this back to the library so you and bruce and kimmy all have something in common by the way bruce shermerhorn that's a great name it is a great i was name. really i'm like need to keep him in the rotation with dorian wallingford yeah. of just really really excellent names but yes i love All of those moments. I love that we are so on the same wavelength because (laughs) all of those were things that I had noted for myself too. Yep. All right. So speaking of things I noted for myself, let's hear about this fashion. There is some good stuff happening this week.
1: There is some really good stuff. So Stacey's first outfit, she's talking about how she still shops in New York. So – I still shop there, which means I look pretty sophisticated in Stony Brook. For example, I had dressed for my train ride in a white jumpsuit layered over a blue tank top. I had on white push-down socks with blue hearts all over them, a wide blue patent leather belt, and a wild necklace made of all kinds of plastic sea creatures in a rainbow of colors. I feel like that's a lot for a train ride. It is. But I do appreciate her color coordination. And I feel like we've
0: talked about the way that people used to get dressed up to travel a number of times now. I feel like the train used to be more sophisticated as well. Like, I remember there was that whole episode of Sex and the City that was very much about that, you know, you think of train rides being mm-hmm. elegant, and, and and that's like old Hollywood, and really it's just a giant bus. And I have had that personal experience, crushing moment as well. <laughs>
1: yep. Exactly. So also, while Stacy is in New York visiting her dad for the – I guess she's sort of telling us while she's on the train about her weekend with her dad while she's traveling back to Stony Brook, but – on Saturday, they had just sort of gone to brunch, and then they wandered around the city until dinner time, which seems like a long time to just be walking around New York. I mean, I would love it, but also, like, they lived there, so what are they – like, do some stuff, you know? Like – but whatever. One of the things is – so – my dad knows that one of my favorite stores is Fiorucci, so when we got near it, he suggested we go in. He told me to pick out anything I wanted. For a second, I considered taking him at his word and asking him asking him to buy me this outrageous purple suede jacket. Was it beautiful? Cropped short at the waist and covered with fringe all up the arms and across the back, but I did the mature thing, silly me, and picked out a wild pair of sunglasses, heart-shaped ones, in a black and white checkerboard pattern. Claudia, my best friend in Sony Brook, would love them. I know. Like, girl, get the jacket. Come on. <laughs> I'm just saying I was all
0: about that jacket. I would have been all about that jacket. I owned a very similar version in, like, a Hunter Green. Mm -hmm. I would still own that jacket. I would rock the shit out of that jacket. Like, yeah. Hey, milk this child of divorce with rich parents thing. Exactly.
1: he took off the whole day from working on a Saturday, and he's offering to buy you anything you want in this store. At least try. If he says, no, that's too right? expensive, like, fine. And I think she even says that later, like, I should have at least tried for that. Or Claudia tells her, like, you could have at least asked for the jacket first, and if he said no, then you can get the sunglasses. But at least try to get it. Like, like the worst thing you right? can do is say no. <laughs> and that makes me feel so
0: gross and entitled I to know, even be thinking about But I'm like, oh, but I want that jacket. I want that jacket a lot. Exactly. I need that jacket to exist I would right 100% now.
1: ask for the jacket. I would understand if the answer was no, but I would at least ask for it. He said, whatever you want in the entire store. Like, right? at least try. Ugh. I don't know. But whatever. <laughs> and then <laughs> – so there's another Stacey outfit that I have to describe. So – I wanted to change out of my school clothes since I'd worn a new outfit that day and I wanted to keep it nice. I'd gotten this pink polka dotted short skirt with suspender straps and had worn it with an oversized white t-shirt. I had on my pink high top sneakers folded down to show their striped lining. I'd also worn these great earrings Claudia had given me for my last birthday. They had all these little pink plastic hearts dangling down from one bigger heart. In case you haven't noticed, I do like the color pink. I loved that little observation. Mm-hmm. It was so cute. I know. Because
0: she really does – the what, like, Claudia mixes and matches a lot more, where Stacy's a lot more, like, coordinated. Yeah. And I love that little detail. That's something that I didn't really pick up on as a kid, mm-hmm. that as an adult, I'm, like, realizing, oh, I get – like, I get the differences in their styles right.
1: now. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely – and I, I think that sort of goes to, like, the – sophisticated descriptor of Stacey. Like, Mm -hmm. she's very coordinated. Like you said, coordinated is, like, the right word for her. It's all very, like, sort of wild and out there, but everything matches as opposed to Claudia where it all goes together, but it doesn't necessarily match, if that makes sense.
0: Right. And the late 80s, early 90s, the height of sophistication was the matching. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that was what you did. You dyed your shoes to match the shade of your bridesmaid's dress. And that was, like it and now can you even imagine like dying shoes to and that was like th- that was the time i did it was for the bridesmaids but that was just a thing that women did because everything had to your shoes and your bag had to match mm-hmm. perfectly in order to coordinate with your dress like there was no contrasting moments. And I love a contrasting pattern. Mm -hmm. I love a messy, artistic look. That's I think that's my Claudia coming out. But yes, (laughs) at that time, like now we look back and we're like, oh, my God, pick a different color, Stacey. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And at that time, it really was the height of sophistication. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. And so those are like the the good outfits like we've all always got the christy jeans turtleneck sweater and running shoes as usual and then this one is just sort of fun when the the pikes are doing their wizard of oz the triplets are the cowardly lion the scarecrow and the tin woodsman so this is what they're wearing Just then, the triplets slid down the banister, one after the other. Adam, as the Cowardly Lion, wore a yellow fringed bedspread tied around his shoulders. Jordan had on old jeans and a flannel shirt. He looked pretty good as the Scarecrow. Byron was the Tin Woodsman, and his was the hardest costume to put together. He'd found a funnel to wear as a hat, and he was carrying a toy hatchet. Like, it's just cute. (laughs) It is really cute. And, like, it may strain
0: believability that the triplets would be so all in on this. Yeah. And... Yeah, whatever it was really really entertaining to read mm-hmm. don't even care yep fully loved it so yeah i'd say overall you know uh, this was definitely one of those books that i can actually see myself reading again mm-hmm. because there wasn't enough egregious in it to like really piss me off and while the plot was not you know one of the more well executed ones it was just really really fun to read mm-hmm. yeah it was a good one for sure well, let's hope that holds up as much for the next one. We should do our predictions for our next episode because we are coming up to our very next super special, which is Babysitter's Island Adventure. And I'm going to venture a guess and say we're back into summer vacation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. I This is one of the ones that I read and reread as a child. So I'll let you go first Ooh, because I have I pretty strong say. memories of this one.
0: Okay, good. Because I have a couple of memories of Babysitter's Island ones, but I feel like they've all kind of mushed together over the years. So I'm not really sure. And I want to say there was the Bahamas, but I know that we talked about that on the, the cruise one because that was the Taz Tuckin in my Bahamas cruise. <laughs> and. <laughs> couldn't resist the urge. But I know that there was one that they got kind of shipwrecked or like that there was some very mild Lord of the Flies type things happening or, you know, something along those lines. And then there was one about babies, but I don't remember all of that. So I'm going to go with this one is one where they get left behind on some kind of class trip. They're doing some, you know, like off the, I'm, I'm like, what was that? Dawson's Creek. There were those little islands and they did the like scary movie one where they like tried to recreate Blair Witch Project so this is a little before that but I'm guessing and summer but I'm guessing it's something similar where they go on like a, a a summer camp excursion to like a nearby island off the coast and accidentally get left behind and have to survive for some unspecified period of time
1: well let me tell you what really happens. You're not like totally okay, wrong, but it's not all of the babysitters that get stranded. So okay. um, Dawn and Claudia are very into sailing, apparently – Okay it gets introduced in this book. They're very into sailing. And they're very competitive. And so they the book starts with them like racing, and one of them loses and they like sort of are like, okay, let's have a rematch. And so they plan like the next weekend, they're gonna do another trip, but they're gonna take some of the kids that they babysit with them. I think there's a couple pikes, maybe Jamie Newton. And so they are going out on this race. They're gonna I think the the plan is they're gonna like race to an island, have lunch with the kids, and then race back. And so what happens is when they are racing out to the island, they – a big storm crops up and they – one of the boats capsizes. The other one, um, they're able to get the everybody into that one and then they make it to some island. I I, I don't know how many like – random little islands there are off the coast of connecticut but they end up on a random island where they end up having to survive for a few days they have the food that they brought with them for the the picnic oh, there's a lot of candy because claudia is one of the um people steering the boat or whatever so she packed one of the picnic baskets i think it's jamie newton gets sick and they have to try to like take care of him while they're waiting to be rescued and like Claudia ends up coming up with like all of these brilliant ideas to like get water and save water and then she finds a mirror and she uses that to signal to a plane that's like searching for them and so then all of the rest of the babysitters are back in Stony Brook doing various things to try to find them. So there's a lot more sort of coordination among the babysitter's back in stony brook although i think stacy's in new york for the weekend or something so she's not even really there but she's like freaking out from new york marianne and don had a fight right before the boat race and so marianne's like got that guilt on top of the fact that her sister is missing those are sort of the big points i can't think of like i'm sure and i think there are at least one or two pikes there so i think that Mallory's sort of like freaking out because her siblings are with them and they find the first boat all broken apart and everyone thinks that something really terrible happened and then they find the other boat and it's empty because it floated away from the island and the end
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was so thorough i cannot wait to read the book because i'm going to be able to like match it up plot point by (laughs) plot point i I'm, i'm so excited now and i love to know that i wasn't you know like completely far off yeah i still am maintaining that there is going to be one book where they do dig into uh What's his face? Old man Hickory. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I feel like I remember that. But maybe I'm just remembering the one with Koki Mason where, you know, they met at his grave. But in any case, I'm, I'm very excited for this island adventure now that I know that it is that dramatic. And also, let's talk about Irresponsible. If you're going to, like, race in sailboats, sure, let's bring a bunch of kids that we right. babysit.
1: Yeah. Anyway, it, it, The logic is not great. <laughs> You know, in- internal logic is
0: not one of the strengths of the
1: <laughs> of the series, in the best way possible. I mean that with all the love in my yes, heart. Yes, a hundred percent. But yes, there. This I feel like is going to be one with a lot of plot stupidity for sure. Okay. Well, any other final club business? Why don't you remind everybody where they can get a hold of us? Okay. Well, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Generation BSC. Or if you have much more to say than can fit in a tweet or a DM on either platform, you can email us at generationbsc at gmail.com. So with that, I'm Kate Vlasic. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say
0: hello to your friends.